Well, good morning, saints. Trust you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as you turn there. Remember, an open Bible is better than a closed one. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for sending your promised Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. For it's only by the Spirit that we have any chance of seeing Jesus as he truly is, Lord and Christ. Shape and conform our affections and our desires as would be fitting for people belonging to the Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so you have your Bibles open. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 41. As you heard David read it, you became aware we are actually taking on a very large chunk of Scripture today, aren't we? Well, it's not only a large chunk of Scripture, it's profoundly important. I would actually argue that it's top four most important moments in the entire New Testament. What other ones do you think belong on that list of top four? The death of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit. These are red-letter moments, if you will, in Scripture. I want this morning for us to look at this long passage in two parts. The first thing we're going to see is what happened. That's verses 1 to 13. And then the second thing we're going to look at is Peter's sermon in response. So let's jump right in. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, what happened? As we've been moving through Acts, we are aware of where we are at this point in the story. A handful of days have passed since Jesus' finest final promise to the disciples. What was his final promise to the disciples? Do you remember? He told them that he was going to send the Holy Spirit upon them. You see it in verse 4 of chapter 1. You see it in verse 8. He told them to remain in Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. So this promised Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and it was going to empower them to be witnesses to Jesus. So what were the disciples doing as we come up to chapter 2? They were being obedient and they were being prayerful. They obeyed the Lord. They remained in Jerusalem and waited. And they were gathered together in an upper room praying. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, already we behold the very providence and sovereignty of our Lord God. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent out on his people and coordinated it so that it would happen on a particular day, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the Jewish feast of Shavuot when God's people celebrated the law being given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was the second of three great pilgrimages that God's people would make every year as they would descend or ascend up into Jerusalem, gathering together for these high holy days to worship the Lord God in his temple, his physical address on earth. And so already behold the sovereign care of God. God coordinated that the Holy Spirit would be poured out in Jerusalem 
at a time when Jews from all over the known world had gathered into that one place and could have this collective experience together. Marks a major turning point in salvation history. You see, up to this moment, everything that really mattered in God's providence and in the good news of his people happened by them gathering into one central place and one central point, the temple in Jerusalem, God's manifest presence in the temple. You could say that up to this point, God's work through his people was centripetal. Do you know what I mean by centripetal? Centripetal is that force that happens from the outer circumference in towards the radius of a circle. That's centripetal force. But from this moment forward, God's work by his poured out Holy Spirit through his witnesses would no longer be centripetal, it would be centrifugal. The gospel, the good news of the mighty deeds of God through Jesus Christ will now move by the power of the Holy Spirit out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Does that sound familiar? That's verse 1. Behold the careful, mighty providence of God that he would have his spirit poured out on the Feast of Pentecost when men and women from all nations were gathered together in Jerusalem so that, empowered by the Spirit, they could take that gospel out. Verse 1. Verses 2 to 3. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. We're told that when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the first church, it happened suddenly, right? Just boom, out of nowhere. We're told that it came from heaven. In other words, what happened on that day was not some mere meteorological event. It wasn't just a windstorm. It was from heaven. And it was marked by two phenomena that give us insight into what God was doing at this time. Did you notice what they were? Wind and fire. Where else in the Old Testament have you seen this passage that there was a sound of rushing wind? Can you think of any? There are a few. Most notably in Ezekiel chapter 37. God has called the great prophet Ezekiel out into the valley of dry bones. And the dry bones, Ezekiel is told by God, those dead, dried out bones represent faithless, apostate Israel. They represent God's people who have turned their back on God, and they are now just like a bunch of dead, dried out bones. And what happens? Well, in that moment in Ezekiel chapter 37, we're told that there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it comes across those dried out bones. 
and it begins to stack the bones one on top of another. That sound of that mighty rushing wind takes the bones, puts them together, puts sinew back on them, puts flesh back on those bones, and puts skin on the outer side. And then breathes the spirit of life into them. The sound of a mighty rushing wind. This is a reference and an illusion that happened that Luke included in his account. It would not have been lost on the earliest audience. They'd have said, we know what that's all about. God's spirit showing up as a mighty rushing wind is the spirit that moves his people from dead in their trespasses and sins to resurrected to new life. The spirit is poured out. And wind is the accompanying symbol. Ezekiel 37, 14, God is speaking to Ezekiel and to the people of God, and he says this, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. The first sign that accompanies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is that of the rushing wind. The second one is fire. Now, can you think of another place in the Old Testament where there's fire? Well, there are several. What about Exodus chapter 3? When Moses is all by himself and God appears to him in a burning bush that doesn't self-consume. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning and not consumed. Hmm. A flame of fire that burns brightly but does not consume and burn up. Sounds an awful lot like Pentecost, doesn't it? So we have the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus, now poured out on the day of Pentecost on these disciples, and the accompanying signs are wind and fire. What does it mean? It means that the Lord God is here. It means that the Spirit of God is bringing new life to dry bones. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Let's press on. Verse 4, we're told they were filled with that Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verses 5 to 11, we're told that men and women gathered from all across the known world on Jerusalem, they begin to hear the gospel, the mighty deeds of God, in their own languages. Isn't that remarkable? So Jesus promises that these disciples are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Just wait in Jerusalem. A couple days later, the Holy Spirit is poured out them on the day of Pentecost, it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. It looks like flames of fire above their head. 
And they begin to speak in languages that they don't even know, declaring the mighty works of God, the gospel. And all the people from all of the nations gathered around heard it in their own language. What's happening here? There's at least two things. The first thing to note is that Pentecost marks the reversal of the fallout of the original fall of sin. It means that God, by his spirit, has not abandoned humanity to their own devices, but he is pouring out his Holy Spirit to redeem and restore everything that we have messed up by our idolatry and our sin. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Maybe you're familiar with the account of the Tower of Babel back in Genesis. Have you heard of that? Earliest human beings, shortly after sin entered the world, they got their heads together in an idolatrous way. They said, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower that stretches to God. What they were saying is we are going to use our God-given brains and our technology to try to dethrone the Lord God and take his place. That was the Tower of Babel. Do you guys know what happened to the Tower of Babel? God granted them various languages to confuse them and to scatter them all across the earth. That was the consequence of their sin. Come to Genesis chapter 2. Now God is using various languages to do the exact opposite. To bring a scattered, fractured, broken humanity back together under the preaching of the mighty deeds of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two different languages, empowered by the Spirit. That's the first thing. The second thing that's worth noting from this, these different languages... The gospel from the beginning has never been culturally bound. But let me tell you what I mean. If you were to go home today and convert to Islam, I don't recommend it, but if you were, the first thing you'd have to do is learn Arabic so that you could read the Quran. See, this is what marks Christianity out as different from other world religions. Our gospel of Jesus Christ is not culturally bound, but it transcends all languages and all cultures. Think about the beauty of that. Look at verse 8, or begin back at verse 7. The crowds were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? What's going on? They're hearing their own languages and they're saying, I thought all these guys were from Galilee. How can they know my language? Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and even visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
See, from the earliest days of the church, the gospel has never been culturally bound. It transcends culture. That's why Paul, in his missionary journey, was able to go to the shrine to the unknown God. You know that account? We're going to look at it in Acts in a couple of weeks. Paul goes to that, and, and he knows that the gospel is not culturally bound. It needs, to be, um, it needs to be culturally applied to different scenarios. And so he goes to the, the, the shrine of the unknown God and the people worshiping at it, and he comes up alongside them and he says, I see you guys are sincere. Let me tell you about the unknown God. His name is Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is not culturally bound. This was the great wisdom of Hudson Taylor, who took the gospel into inland China and did so for the first time with missionaries who wore traditional Chinese clothing and cut their hair like men from inland China because they knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not about the outer trappings of culture. This is the brilliance of the Jesuit missionaries who came just a little bit further north from here to Midland. And when they showed up, they listened to the stories of the men and women about the mighty Gitche Manitou. And they knew that the gospel wasn't culturally bound. They knew that Jesus Christ, by his spirit, was already at work. And so they came up alongside those native people and they said, let me tell you who the mighty Gitche Manitou is. You see, when the Spirit of God was poured out on the earliest church, they spoke in various languages to every tribe and nation because the gospel is not bound by culture. It transcends it. And beautifully so. In Revelation chapter 5, when all of the redeemed are gathered around the throne of the Lamb, they sing out, in their tongue, in their language, reflecting back the glory and the worthiness of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And they do so in a way that is particular to their own culture and tribe, in ways that no one else could do it otherwise. This is part of the glory of the gospel. It lives out even in our church today. You know, you look at a, at a congregation of people gathered together and it's kind of an odd thing apart from the gospel, isn't it? You find yourself in church with people that you might not otherwise have much in common with. Maybe you wouldn't even be friends. And yet, because of this deep truth of the mighty deeds of God, because of the gospel, you are more than friends you are more than people who share a common interest or common hobby. You are brothers and sisters in Christ because of this transcendent truth of the gospel. Culturally very different, but all one in Christ. So the gospel is preached on that day in many different tongues and languages. Look at verses 12 and 13. So all the crowds that were gathered that day, they were what? Amazed and perplexed, and rightly so. 
And the, the same result happens today when the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people had genuine questions. Look at verse 12. He said, what does this mean? Right? You hear the gospel of the mighty deeds of God in Jesus preached in their language, and they have the genuine question. They're like, what is all of this? Tell me more. Surely you've met people like that who have genuine questions. But it's also often met with hostility. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, others mocked. Said, man, those guys are drunk and it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Well, you can expect the same. When spirit empowered preaching happens through the witnesses to Jesus, some people are going to ask you and say, Tell me more. And some people are going to mock. Well, friends, that's what happened. The Holy Spirit is promised, it's poured out on Pentecost. Let's look at Peter's first sermon, verses 14 to 41. So while all of this is happening on this day of Pentecost, can you picture it in your mind? Peter steps up to the crowd and he preaches the very first apostolic sermon ever recorded. I want you to notice that Peter's sermon is biblical throughout, isn't it? There are four things to notice about Peter's sermon. The first thing to notice is that it is an expository sermon. Do you know what I mean by that? It means that Peter didn't just get up and share his thoughts or his feelings or, you know, bullet points from the latest book that he read. But Peter dove into the scriptures and unpacked them one by one. It's expository. The second thing to notice about this sermon is that it's Christocentric. Peter's preaching on that first sermon and all apostolic preaching that follows goes something like this. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Charles Spurgeon used to say, just as all roads lead to London, all scriptures lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's first sermon was expository. It was Christocentric. It was also fearless. Did you hear that when David was reading it? We're talking about a sermon that was preached like a month and a half after Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter stands up in front of this massive crowd. It was obviously well over 3,000 people. And he calls them out. He hauls them down on the rug with the truth of God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, this Jesus that you crucified. Talk about a fearless sermon. Fourth and finally, Peter's sermon is rational. He moves rationally through the scriptures, pointing them to Jesus, fearlessly so without asking them to check their collective brains at the door. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ appeals to our hearts through our heads. Good preaching never asks you just to check your brain at the door, but instead to reason and ration together around the scriptures 
and then to allow the Holy Spirit to work that miracle where it touches your heart. Well, that's the pattern of what Peter did in this first sermon. He takes the Bible and he unpacks it and he applies it for the audience, for the crowd that day. No less than three times he makes direct appeals to Scripture. I want you to consider this moment and then how that applies to our lives. Over the last month and a half, Peter and all of the apostles, all of the apostles and all the disciples have been on some kind of emotional roller coaster, right? They've had events happen to them that are unprecedented in their lifetime. Their, their very best friend, 50 days ago, was crucified on a Roman cross. He died. They spent three days grieving and lost in despair. Then he appeared. And he walked with them and he talked with them and he ate with them for 40 days. Wild. They must have been just reeling, right? What's going on here? And if that's not enough, at the end of 40 days, they're standing there talking to him, and he goes up into the heavens in a cloud. Like, what in the world is going on here? And then a couple days after that, the Holy Spirit is poured out, they begin speaking in languages that they don't even know, bearing witness to God, and seeing other people responding to the good news of Jesus. This is a wild turn of events, right? And what did Peter do? Did he say, yo guys, you gotta just give me a little bit of me time here to figure this out. Right? I'm gonna have to go and read several books. I gotta watch some TED Talks and you know, YouTube videos because i got to sort out what's happening here. Is that what he did? No. In the face of uncertain circumstances in his life and in his world, Peter appealed to Scripture. He said, what is this all about? And he found meaning for himself and meaning for his circumstances by reading God's Word and applying it to his life and to his world. Look, we would all agree that our world today is fractured and fractious and polarized and being torn apart in ways that lead many of us to anxiety. And maybe you've been sitting at home and had the thought, if only God would tell us what to do. He has. It's in the Bible. Like Peter... Make sense of your life and of your world by coming back to Scripture, rolling up your sleeves, reading it, studying it, and applying it. That's what's happening. The first Scripture that he appeals to, look at verses 28 to 32, is, or sorry, look at verses 16 to 24, is from Joel chapter 2. I'm not going to take time to get into it, just give you a high-level overview. Peter's pointing to this scripture. He's pointing to Joel 2 to tell the crowd what they are witnessing on that day. He says, just like God promised, there's no surprise here, folks. God promised it. 
thousands of years ago to Joel, about a thousand years ago to Joel, he's now fulfilling it. That's what you're witnessing. The Spirit being poured out on all flesh in the last days. The application for you and me today is the Spirit of God has been poured out. You're a Christian man or woman and you're looking at it saying, yeah, but RD, I'm too young. RD, I'm too old to be a useful witness to the Lord. Not according to Scripture. Not according to Peter. Peter made sense of this event by saying, God's Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Young men, old men, men, women, because it's the last days. Another application of this speaks directly to a lot of our cultural trends. It means the Christian man or woman leaves no place for identity politics and cultural Marxism. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh, men, women, young, old. it's the last days, verse 21. It's a time when people are going to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. I want to move to the next thing quickly, but before I do, maybe that's for you today. You see the world rotting all around you. You need to be saved. The Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved in these last days. The point that Peter is making here, appealing to Joel chapter 2, is again Jesus. Look at verses 22 to 24. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's appealing to scripture and then applying it to them and saying, the Holy Spirit has been poured out as promised in Joel 2. You killed Jesus. God raised him, and it was all part of God's plan to save his people. I just have this picture, and I know it's anachronistic, okay, but give me a little bit of poetic license here. I had this picture in my mind of like 3,000 and some people gathered around on that day of Pentecost. They don't know what's going on. They're saying, what does all this mean? And Peter standing there, this is the anachronistic part, with his Bible in his hand, pointing to the Bible and saying, this is what's going on. The Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And it's all about Jesus. And by that Spirit, you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's what's happening. Verses 25 to 33. Here he's appealing to Psalm 16. And he's saying that David, who was Israel's greatest king, actually served in the providence of God to be a prophet who wrote foretelling 
the events of this past 50 days. That's his argument there. Again, the point is Jesus, verse 29. He says, Jesus is greater than David. David died and is buried, still there. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's appealing to this passage in Psalms, and he's saying the same spirit that exalted Jesus Christ to the right hand of God has been poured out on you. That's what's happening here. Third and final one, verses 34 to 36. He's applying Psalm 110. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, the point. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the entire point of Peter's sermon. That the Spirit of God has been poured out so that you would know that the Jesus who was crucified has been made Lord and Christ over everything. See, friends, that's what the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. So much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is going to tell us it's not even possible for you to say that Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way that you will ever behold Jesus for who he truly is, Lord and Christ, is by the work of this poured out Holy Spirit that happened back in Acts chapter 2 and is happening today. Verse 37. So what happened? Verse 37, well, the crowds heard Peter's first sermon and they were cut to the heart. Have you ever been cut to the heart by God's word? Has the word of God ever come to you in the power of the Spirit and sliced you like a two-edged sword that's living and active and powerful. Well, the crowd gathered that day. They were cut to the heart by this Spirit-empowered witness to Jesus. All Peter had to do was read and apply the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit did the cutting to the heart. And so they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter and the apostles, verse 37, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter answers, verse 38, repent. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in Jesus' name, for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a pretty clear sermon, isn't it? And the same thing remains true today. 
Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been hearing about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and you feel God the Holy Spirit beginning to tug at your heart. Maybe the Word of God has cut you to the heart and you'd ask that same question as the crowd on that day. What should I do? The answer remains the same. Repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. Now, have you ever truly changed your mind on anything? I mean, I was thinking about things that I've changed my mind on. The best that I could come up with is, I used to hate mushrooms and pick them out of everything. Now I like them. A pretty trivial example, right? It's really hard to change your mind. In fact, Scripture would tell you that when it comes to changing your mind about Jesus being Lord and Christ, it's not difficult. It's impossible for you to do it. The only way you can do it is if the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you, convicts you of your sin, shows you the glory of Christ, and causes you to repent and change your mind. So if you even feel a flicker of that faith, that's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, glorifying the Son, saving you. Repent. Bow your knee to Jesus as Lord. And then Peter says, and after that, be baptized. Now, if you have never been baptized, or perhaps you've just repented today and want to be baptized, it just so happens I know of a great time and place. June 11th, the water's going to be cold, but Jesus is going to be there. Verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children. Verse 40, you are concerned about this crooked generation that you find yourself in. You look around and you see corrupt politicians and corrupt media and all these you know, misinformation, disinformation, this crooked generation that we live in. It makes you worried. What are you going to do? Where are you going to turn? Are you going to try to lobby for political power? No. You're going to try to come up with a media strategy to change the narrative? No. Save yourself and your children by repenting and being baptized. For it is people filled with the Holy Spirit in these last days that will witness to Jesus and will persevere to the end and be saved. Some 3,000 people that day responded by the power of the Spirit. They repented, they were saved, and they were baptized. Friend, maybe today's your day. If you even have the slightest inkling that you want to repent, change your mind, and bow your knee to Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit is doing that. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. If you would say that that's me, R.D., I feel like I want to respond. The Holy Spirit, I think, is at work in me. And the promise of God is that you will be saved. Just right now say, Jesus, 
I believe that you are Lord. I believe that God has raised you from the dead. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins and to cause me to be born again. Thank you for the work of the Spirit here this morning, glorifying the Son and bringing us to Jesus. Father, would you boldly empower each and every one of us to be witnesses to the resurrected Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.